We make a really big deal about God's presence here at Compass. Really big deal. We make a big deal about God's presence because the Bible makes a big deal about God's presence. I believe the story of Scripture tells the story of we were in God's presence, there was a disruption, and how do we get back home? How do we get back home? That's the whole story of Scripture. Today we're talking about an encounter Jesus had where the whole story of Scripture just comes together. Comes together, and there's an invitation for us to experience God's presence. But as we talk about that, as we jump into this story, there's two temptations that we face. Two temptations when we think about experiencing God's presence. And because I went to a Baptist seminary, they're going to be alliterated. Same letter. Here we go. One temptation is insider syndrome. Another temptation is impossible syndrome. Aha, that was totally worth waking up in the rain for. Impossible, or insider syndrome. What's insider syndrome? A friend of mine dry, drove a GMC Safari. Do you know what a GMC Safari is? <clears throat> it's God's gift to teenagers learning how to drive. If you're a teenager learning how to drive, you have to drive the family minivan. I'm so sorry. But that's why God made GMC Safaris. It's a minivan, yes. Sorry. But it has a V8. You're welcome. <laughs> I learned how to drive a GMC Safari. I thought I was going to do a backflip in that car. I mean, it just, you just take off. Like, you're just like, you're doing pop wheel. It was incredible. So my friend drives a GMC Safari. As you can imagine, these things just get broken down and beat up and it's a GMC Safari. Who cares about it? And so my friend's driving this and there's a massive just crack across the center of the windshield. There's, you know, a little bit of spider webs happening. So he gives his friend a ride. His friend steps in the car and is like, what? What are we riding in? This is like a death trap. What are you talking about? He's like, I'm not driving. This is not safe. You can barely see through that windshield. And he's like, no, like, you just kind of get, you know, you just kind of drive like this. And he's like, no, like, this, is, this could fall on us at any second. And my friend is really, like, perplexed. Like, what are you, what are you talking about? I drive in this thing every day, and I'm totally used to it. Oh, insider syndrome. Or we can talk about amazing, life-changing truths, and we're like, <gasps> oh, yeah. And I don't think the problem is with the truth. I don't think it's that, we're, that we, we know it so well, we know so much that we're bored with amazing stuff. I don't think that's the problem. I think that in our immaturity, we can take invitations for granted. That's insider syndrome. That's a concern. It doesn't keep me up at night. What keeps me up at night is impossible syndrome. We live in a world where relationships are becoming more and more rare, we are getting used to being ignored, and we are getting used to speaking to people who their mind is always somewhere else. And so when we talk about God is for you, he's coming after you, he's on your side, he's relentless, we're like, hmm, no one else in my life has been like that. So what do you mean when you say God's going to be like that? There, I'm, I'm just, there's going to be some disappointments here. It's impossible. Uh, my friend who's an entrepreneur, they say that 90% of people can't get excited about what they can't imagine. 90% of people can't get excited about what they can't get imagine. And we're like, hey, God's presence is, is crazy, crazy good news, and it's really exciting. It's like, yeah, I mean, I've been disappointed by other people's presence, so what, what's going to be different with God? 
right? And then we just sound like people who are really excited about like Apple's new ski goggles that you're supposed to hang out with your family and pay $3,500. We're like, it's great. We're like, yeah, sure. We trust you. Did you guys not see that? Right? You said it's crazy, right? People are excited about it. It looks nuts. Like, you, just look it up. You don't know what I'm talking about. Those are the two temptations we face as we take a deep dive into God's presence today. Last week, we read a verse that I think is shocking. And I, I think I have a pretty good feel sometimes of what's going on in the room. I know when I say something, I get like, though. I read this verse and nobody was like, what? Like, what happened? Why did we just read that? What does that mean? How should I feel about God now? We read this verse. I'll put it in just lots of translations so you can see it. John 2, 24. Essentially, it says, But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. I think that's a crazy verse. I think it's like, there's a lot of implications for that. The KJV says, But Jesus did not commit himself unto them, because he knew all men. And the NAS says, But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all people. So, you can relate to Jesus, and he's like, mm, I'm going to keep my distance. What? So we're talking about God's presence, and we just read a verse last week where God is like, hey, just need some me time right now. Not going to jump into this thing with you. And we're like, what? How do, what? what? What does this mean? How do we not be these people? What's going on here? It's a crazy verse. I believe the passage we're going to look at, though, this verse is set up as a sort of foil to the passage we're going to be looking at today. So this is what it literally says. If we just do the literal Craig translation, Jesus did not entrust himself to these people because he knew the hearts of men. That's what it literally says. Then we get this in the passage we're going to read. There was a man named Nicodemus. Do you hear that contrast? So these people over here, Jesus is saying, mm, we're not going to get into it. There was a man who he does entrust himself to. And the next three chapters in John, we see Jesus committing himself to three different groups of people. In John chapter 3, he commits himself to skeptics. What does it look like when Jesus says, I'm here, I'm for you. Let's, let's, let's figure this out. He commits himself to an outsider in John chapter 4. She's an outsider on two accounts. First century Palestine, don't know if you know this, wasn't really a friendly place to women. So she's an outsider there. Also wasn't a friendly place. There's a lot of racial tension between Israelites and Samaritans. So she's an outsider on two accounts. Jesus commits himself to her. He entrusts himself to her. And then there's a man in John chapter 5 who's walking through hell on earth. Suffering. Unimaginable suffering that you and I can't imagine. And Jesus commits himself there. The reason I put three different translations up here and there's the word commit and entrust is highlighted in red is because not every translation committee could agree to how to use that word. The word is believed. It literally says Jesus didn't believe in these people because he knew what was in their hearts. But here's some people he did believe in. Now, that sounds crazy. I am not saying, for the record, for the, for the flood of emails I'm about to get, I am not saying that God believes in us. Like, hey, let's, let's change our, our religion from a God-centered religion to a people-centered religion. And God believes in us. And forget believing in God, he believes in us. I'm not saying that. I am saying... I am saying throughout John's gospel, throughout John's gospel, the word believe does not mean what we think it means. We think, oh, I believe Jesus existed. I acknowledge, I trust that that's reality. It's not what believe means. It means commit, entrust ourselves, hand over. And here we see that the invitation to know Jesus comes 
when he first makes a move, he says, I'm here. I'm for you. And he gives us three different examples of people he entrusts himself to. And you can find yourself in one of these. Are you skeptical? Maybe you've never been to church before and you're like, this stuff seems crazy. This is wild. How does Jesus, what does it look like when he commits himself to us skeptics? Maybe you've been in church a long time. You're like, "Mm mm-hmm, this is a disappointing community. How does Jesus' commitment to you look there? Maybe you're an outsider. Maybe this does not feel like home. There's so many differences. You, You see all these people doing all these things, beautiful, happy people, and you're like, this is Amy. What does it look like when Jesus commits himself to you? Or maybe you're walking through hell. Maybe you're suffering in real ways and you're like, yeah, God. What's God going to do? God's the one making me suffer. We, look like, we get to see in these next three chapters what it looks like for Jesus to be hospitable. For Jesus to entrust himself, to be available, to be present to skeptics, to outsiders, and to sufferers. And when we start to see this, The Gospel of John makes a very bold claim. God's presence transforms our identities. God's presence transforms our identities. Not adjusts our behavior, but it changes how we see ourselves. We only let people we trust change our identity. Oh, I woke up on a rainy Sunday morning, middle of summer, Came to church, tell me who to be, tell me what to feel, tell me what to think, right? Do that. No. We only let people we trust over time change our identities. What do we want? Change. When do we want it? Right now. We get to see a Jesus who is patient, who walks alongside us, who lets us wrestle, and in the wrestling match doesn't move away because our Questions make him uncomfortable. See the two temptations? Which one are you feeling right now? Are you feeling temptation to like, be like, yeah, duh. Why wouldn't he do that? Of course. How great am I? He wants to be with me. I don't think so. I think most of us are facing this temptation of like, we'll see. I hear that, but we'll see. I'm going to change your life today with the book of Leviticus. I'm just so excited, all right? You're like, Leviticus? You're going to look at the book of Leviticus like in new light. You're going to be so excited about the book of Leviticus. You're like, what's the book of Leviticus? You're going to be so excited. It's an ancient law code. It has all kinds of rules about parapets and like how far to walk on certain days. And it's going to change your life. Are you ready? Yes. All right. We got to do some more work, though, first before we get there. A couple different things we got to talk about. We're going to read a, a passage of Scripture that feeds into the most popular verse, like, ever. What, just someone, if you know it, just shout. What's the most popular verse ever? All right, we all agree on that. John, we don't agree on breakfast, lunch, and dinner, but we agree on John 3.16. John 3.16 is not, Jesus didn't say John 3.16, okay? I, I'm like, what? It's John's commentary on what Jesus says. John inserts himself in the story and starts narrating what Jesus is explaining to a guy called Nicodemus. And he's saying this, man, this is all fueled by love. The conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus to us is very foreign. 
Jesus breaks all the rules of the digital age. In the digital age, you've got to be clear and you've got to be clear fast. Why? Because people are only going to watch your video for three seconds. So you've got to get to the point really quickly. Jesus, first century teachers would speak in parables. They'd speak in riddles. They would intentionally try to be confusing. When we read what we're about to read, Jesus is talking about water. He's talking about spirit. He's talking about above, flesh. And Nicodemus' reactions indicate there's way more to this conversation happening than we are aware of. Let me just give you an example. Jesus says, Nicodemus is a smart guy. Right? No, he's, he's no dummy. And Jesus says this, the wind blows wherever it wants and you can't see it, but you feel it. And Nicodemus is like, how can this be? And we're like, yeah, right? right? There might be a little more happening in that conversation than we're aware of. Jesus is not just talking about like, ooh, cool, huh? He's getting at deeper realities. They're speaking in parables. They're saying like, hey, we're using this truth to illustrate something that's happening. So Nicodemus is, is coming to Jesus with insider syndrome. He's overdosing on it. He's like, I know how to experience God's presence. I know how to relate to God. You try really hard. You keep Torah. You obey. And if you try hard enough and everybody around you tries hard enough, you get to experience God's presence. But then came Jesus, and Nicodemus has eyes, and he's seeing something's happening with Jesus. People are coming to him. We're experiencing God's presence. Uh, what, what I'm doing and what I'm seeing do not line up. So he comes to him at night. Why is he coming to him at night? He doesn't want anybody to know he's there. It's a secret meeting. He's skeptical. He hasn't put all his chips in the Jesus basket yet. He's a skeptic. And what do we see Jesus doing? Sitting with him being patient with him, inviting him into experiencing God's presence. So we're going to talk about first what in the world they're talking about, the wind and all this stuff, what's going on? And then we're going to talk about the invitation, patience. Many spiritual practitioners call God the three-mile-per-hour God. Why is that? Because three miles per hour is the average speed that human beings walk at. We want to experience God's presence. We want to grow in our experience of God's presence. And it'd be really nice if we could do that right now. I've got questions. I'm angry about something. God, fix it and fix it now. And God sits with us. He doesn't motivate us by fear. He creates space. He's hospitable. So we're going to see what that looks like. So if you have your Bible, please turn with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 13. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. And if you would, please stand with me out of respect for God's word. God's presence changes our identity. We're going to actually start in verse 24 of chapter 2. John 2, 24. We're going to read all the way to John 3, 13. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each man. Now there was a Pharisee, a man, hear the contrast, named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know, so we're not arguing, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God, for no one could perform these signs that you're doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. 
How can someone be born when they're old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into the mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at me saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone who's been born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus said. You're Israel's teacher, said Jesus. Do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we've seen, but you still do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak to you of heavenly things? No one has gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus, we need your help this morning. We want to experience your spirit. We just sang it. Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. God, we pray that the words we sang and the meditation of our heart would be a posture that invites your presence. Lord, we want, to, we want to be transformed. We don't just want to experience it occasionally. We want to be transformed by your continuous presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Verbs change lives. Verbs change lives. If I were teaching a class on how to read the Bible, all I would say is this. Just pay attention to verbs. Verbs change lives. They absolutely change. I want to show you a verb that can change your life. Why? Because verbs change lives. They move things. They change things. They shake things up. Genesis chapter 3. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Verb walking can change your life. That is technically a hispiel of the Hebrew verb halak, which means to walk. The biblical author is not telling us that God is just putting one foot in front of the other. I'm walking. God's walking here. Hey, I'm walking here. That's not what's happening here. This form of this verb doesn't mean that God is just moving his body around as if he had a body. This form of the verb means to live or to dwell or to spend time, to wake up, to be present. God was present with people in the cool of the day. That, that prepositional phrase, in the cool of the day. The cool of the day, it's a pun in Hebrew. It doesn't translate at all in English, but it's a pun. It's in the ruach of the day. The Hebrew word for spirit is ruach. The spirit of God was introduced in the, in the creation story as he's hovering over his creation. He's present. He cares. He's nurturing. He cares for his creation. And now that nurture turns into presence and relationship where God is with us, dwelling with us walking with us, knowing us. It's important. If you're going to know somebody, you've got to live with them. Right? We, just, that we take that for granted. I found myself in Walmart earlier this week, like you do. And I'm walking around Walmart, and it just hits me. Man, like, they're not from here. They're not from here. How do I know? You just listen. They're like, man, this college town sure is crazy. I'm like, oh, they're not from here. And it just, it just colors, like, the experiences people are having are different because they don't live here. Right? They don't know not to get pizza at Shakespeare's. It's not the best pizza place in town. 
Oh, I know. We're Icarus this morning. <laughs> they don't know this place. But God knows people because he lives, he dwells, he walks among them. You're like, well, that's just, you're making a lot out of a little word. This verb gets repeated and picked up again and again and again. And God loves to say it to people. Leviticus, this is why I said Leviticus can change your life. 26, 12. This is a promise God makes. I will walk. Same verb. I will walk. I will live. I will dwell among you. And then it changes our identity. So he's promising presence. There's the promise. Then here's the, then here's the change of identity. And I'm going to be your God. And you'll be my people. You'll be known, loved, cared, and provided for. God's presence promises to change our identity. That is what every student of the Hebrew Bible understood and took for granted in many ways. We are chasing after God's presence. So when we fast forward to John chapter 3... Nicodemus is asking Jesus, how do I experience your presence? That's what he's asking him. Look, look again at, verses, uh, at verse 2. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God. No one could perform the signs you're doing, what, if God were not with him. He's saying, man, you experience God's presence. That's clear. How do I experience God's presence? Because look, I have been trying. I have been, I mean, I get an A for effort. I am, I am a member of the leading religious group in town. You don't get there. You don't wake up there. You chase after that. You go to the right schools. You study with the right rabbis. You work really hard. He's put in the effort. And all that effort got him was he noticed a bunch of people experiencing God's presence, and he's not. I mean, what's happening here? So what does Jesus say to him? It's wildly shocking. Verse 3, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. What does that mean? Jesus is saying this, you need to have a conversion experience. You're missing it. Religion didn't get you there. That would have been shocking to Nicodemus. What? I'm out? Look, if anybody's in, I'm in. Uh, Jewish folks, for, for Jewish folks in the first century, they're concerned when they heard Jesus talking, they were not concerned about hearing about how do we go to heaven when we die. The assumption in first century Judaism was, of course we're going to heaven when we die. Of course. We're, of course we're in. Of course. Even, even like, even terribly behaving people who don't obey but who belong to this people group. Of course we're in. And now Jesus is saying this. Hey, God's presence is experienced through spiritually curious people. Anyone can experience God's presence. It doesn't matter who you belong to or not. And Nicodemus, and Nicodemus you're out right now. What? But here's what's beautiful about this. Jesus is creating space for Nicodemus' skepticism. He meets him at night. He meets him and he talks to him. He doesn't push him away. Skeptics are welcome. Jesus is, this is what it looks like when Jesus commits. He walks with, he talks with, he speaks to his heart's concerns. You're saying, well, man, like I grew up in a faith community where doubt is like really bad. Like if you ask like, I don't know what's going on. You're just advertising, you're out. Uh, I was reminded, I was talking to a friend and we were talking about uh, 
an area we grew up in together. And there was a small Christian school, and the Christian school teacher said to the students, again, not to me, but you know, kind of the atmosphere I grew up in. They were talking about a tornado that went through and, and a bunch of, of people died. And the teacher said, well, they died because they were disobedient. Right? Now, I don't, I, don't, I don't know about you, but like that stirs up a lot of fear. If you're a kid and you hear that, whoa, I got to obey God. And if I don't, a tornado is going to come and kill me. So many of us experience God in a consequence-based system. If, I, if, I don't, if I'm not a good little boy or girl, if I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do, there will be consequences. That's totally foreign to how Jesus is interacting with Nicodemus right here. There's no fear in this conversation. Nicodemus is showing doubts. He's coming to him at night, and Jesus isn't like waiting for a, I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you. You're a skeptic, and I'm going to get you. He's letting him ask his questions. Why? Because this journey of transformation, this journey toward experiencing God's presence, it doesn't start. It doesn't start the moment we believe. It starts the moment we start asking questions. And Jesus has the long view in mind. He's not like an anxious like door-to-door if salesman is like, we got to close the deal today. I got a boss. They're going to ask me how many vacuums I sold. So you got to sign on the dotted line. You got to like say yes to Jesus now or I get in trouble. No, he can, he can play the long game with him. It's not based on fear. We've talked about this before. This tool, this is called the angle scale. If you're, uh, the angle scale goes from negative eight to positive eight. If you take an issue like trusting Jesus, you may be a negative eight if you're like, I didn't know that was a thing. You're negative, you're totally unaware. To a positive eight where you're like leading small groups and you're like telling people how they can follow Jesus. You're like, wow, this is wonderful and great. People don't move from negative eight to positive eight like that. They move from negative eight to negative six, where they're totally unaware, and then they're like, wait a minute, Jesus? Wait, what are you telling me? They're kind of hostile. They're like, I don't get this. This is weird. Jesus, when he entrusts himself to people, is saying, I'm with you every step of the way. And as we'll see in John chapter three, John chapter four, and John chapter five, results may vary. Not everybody experiences Jesus the same way. When Jesus moves toward us in relationship, what, what does it look like when he entrusts himself to us? He says, hey, there's space here. We can wrestle. I don't know if you know this, but Israel, God's covenant people, Israel, the name Israel means wrestles with God. If God didn't have space for these questions, I, that's a funny name to name his people. It's like, I actually am going to call you, figured it out overnight. I'm going to call you, had no problems. Ready-made ready made follower of Jesus. No, following Jesus is messy. There's questions. Why? Because we're trying to do it with our whole heart. We're trying to be honest. We're trying to bring ourselves to this. And we have questions. And Jesus is gentle with those questions. Now, does he challenge us? Absolutely. Nicodemus is trying to find life on his own, through his own effort. He's trying to experience God's presence through what he can do, through performance thing, and Jesus challenges that. Look at verse 10. He says that, Nicodemus says in verse 9, how can this be? And Jesus says, uh, you're Israel's teacher, and you don't understand these things? It's challenging. But it's coming from a high love place. What's Jesus, what's Jesus talking about? He says, you're Israel's teacher. Don't you know these things? In the Hebrew Bible, there's only one spot, there's only one place in the Hebrew Bible that mentions spirit and water. That's what Jesus has talked about a lot. You need to be born again. 
And Nicodemus was like, what? And he goes, yeah, you need to be born from the Spirit and from the water. And for 2,000 years, Christians have been arguing, what does this mean? Being born of Spirit and water. Can some people be born of water and not Spirit? There's one place in the Hebrew Bible where it puts them together. It's, it's two words describing one thing. Well, it's two words that describe one thing that does two things. You're welcome. Two words that describe one thing. Look with me in Ezekiel. This is the only place in the Hebrew Bible where it mentions spirit and water. I will sprinkle clean water on you. This is God talking to Israel. And you'll be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your impurities and from your idols. Then he says this. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my instruction. What's this saying? When God's presence shows up among us, it cleanses us and makes us new. Nicodemus was trying to do that on his own effort. If I try hard, if I read my Bible every day, if I, if I don't make a deal with the Romans, I'm going to experience God's presence. If I try really hard at work, God will bless me. And what's Jesus saying? No, when God shows up, we experience his presence. And the, the image that Jesus is using is water and spirit. And we experience that. We experience cleansing. And we experience a newness. God's presence changes our identity. His presence changes how we think and feel about ourselves. Now you may be still wondering, wait a minute. So Jesus has committed himself to Nicodemus, but he didn't commit himself to the other spiritual leaders in the town. How do we be people who make sure that we're staying engaged? Well, these three people that Jesus commits himself to in John chapter 3, chapter 4, and chapter 5, on the surface, they don't have anything in common. One's an elite male, one's a woman who's an outsider, and one is someone whose society has forgotten. It's like, what do these people have in common? The thing that we see they all have in common is spiritual curiosity. They're all curious. And when we come to Jesus with spiritual curiosity, he's all in. See, the religious leaders were like, hey, we're disinterested. And Jesus like, yeah, I see that, and I'm going to honor your wishes. You don't, you're not interested? Okay, got it. Nicodemus is wrestling. He's like, wait, 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 I have questions. And just like, I'm all in. What does that mean? When it comes to seeking God, we always get what we want. We don't want God. God honors that wishes. We're like, hey, I'm going to figure this out on my own. God's like, okay. But if we're like, wait, 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 I'm not ready to do that yet. I have questions. Uh, it's messy. God's like, all right, let's do this. This is what it looks like when Jesus entrusts himself to us. So how can we, do, how can we stay curious? How can we be people who really are spiritually curious people? Look, churches spend a lot of money on like demographic studies. Like, who are we trying to reach? And like, it, I have sat in way too many meetings across this country that are just like death. Of like, I was, remember there was one church in California where they were trying to reach stay-at-home moms who are tech-savvy who are just like, oh my gosh, like, I just want to die. Who are we trying to reach? Compass Church, who are we trying to reach? This is a very controversial question two years ago. Are we trying to reach young people or are we trying to reach old people? Who are we trying to reach? Let me tell you who we're trying to reach. Spiritually curious people. That's it, period. I don't care how old you are. If you're young, you're old, you're in, you're out, we're just trying to reach spiritually curious people who are frustrated with the answers the world's giving them. Spiritually curious, and that's what all these people have in common. So how can we, be, how can we stay curious? We need to pay attention to our attention. You want to know what your life is like? Just show me what you pay attention to. Where does your attention go? When we have these questions, when we ourselves find ourselves in the skeptic seat, are we 
curious about that or do we bury that? Do we try to numb that out with like, other things that are going to make us not think about that? Where our attention goes, there our devotion goes. And Jesus is inviting us to say, hey, I'm in this space. Stay curious. Pay attention to what we pay attention to. And when we do that, we can ask big questions. God can handle our big questions. And he doesn't always have to wrap a nice bow onto it. See, results may vary. They may. But God is patient. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. He's got questions. He's hiding. And 16 chapters later, we see Nicodemus again. This is after Jesus has died. And someone's there and says, he was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds, tremendous cost. Here's what's happened. Jesus has died. And at this point in the story, nobody knows what's going to happen next. So Jesus has died, and at great cost to himself, Nicodemus is honoring him publicly. Fear can't do that. Fear can't transform us into that. Why? The boss is gone. Okay, I don't know. I'm, not, I'm off the hook. But God's presence can create that kind of transformation. Are we going to be patient and go on that journey? The journey that shame and fear invites us onto, it, gets, it promises quick results. The journey of sitting with Jesus in these difficult moments is scary, but he's committed to sitting with us regardless of how we are. A pastor I have heard about, Chris, he, I know, Siri went off, my bad, stop. A pastor I relate to, uh, he tells a story about a situation that he was in that was ugly. It revealed things in his heart that he really had to wrestle with. His wife was about to give birth to their first son, and it was a 43-hour labor. Yeah, I know. If, uh, if I had to give birth, I would have like, tried to solve that problem before I had to give birth. Right? I'm like, oh, we're going to make sure people, are, people come and, you know, we put them in the microwave and boom, there they come. Like, it's like 43 hours. Holy cow, that is, that is saint-like. That's amazing. But around hour 42, it got dangerous. And Chris remembers watching the situation and he just sees panic take over the doctor's faces. And it just caused him to spin out. He had been a pastor. He had walked with people through difficult situations like this. But now that he found himself in his own, he doesn't know what to do. And it's scary. The room is going black. He's not sure what to do. And he's, he's freaking out. And he looks at the, his wife's birthing coach. And she's panicked. And he just sits down and is like, just make this stop. Make it stop. I don't know what to do. Thankfully, the doctors were able to come in and skillfully rescue the baby. And his son, Matthew, was born healthy. It's not how it goes for everybody. That evening, his wife's asleep. Matthew was asleep. And he had a moment of quiet. And he's sitting. And he's like, wait a second. I have problems with how today went. God, you promise a peace that passes all understanding. What the heck was that? Like, yeah, you're with me. Why did I go through that? And where were you when I went through that? Wrestles with God. 
How's God going to respond? He starts really like, God, like this isn't right. Like why would you, why would we do that? Why? Why? And he said he could really feel the Spirit of God moving in him in this strong impression where in his mind's eye he could imagine that he was standing in between two mirrors. So there's a mirror to his face and a mirror behind his head. And he's like, I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you and I was with you in that moment. I provided the doctors and the nurses with skill. That's how I provided. That's how I was with you. And Chris was like, I don't know. I, that doesn't feel right. And in his mind's eye, he could imagine he's, the mirrors and he's, he, he hears God saying, hey, see how there's just a lot of you going back and a lot of you going forward? Well, before your grandparents were born, I knew you'd be in this situation. And so I prepared the doctors and the nurses when they were little kids. I put desires in their hearts so they would be here for your new son, Matthew. That they would want to get into medicine. That they'd want to learn how to do this. And Chris is just like, ah. But it still wasn't right. And he just sat there with that tension. He's like, God, I went through this situation. I, I trust. I trust that that's true. But it was really hard what I walked through. And he heard God saying to him, and I'm here. And I'm here. When we walk through pain and suffering, the temptation is to put a nice ribbon on it. Say, hey, look, that wasn't so bad. It is so bad. It is so bad. And I'm not going to stand up here and pretend hard things aren't hard. But 16 chapters from John 3 to John 19 give me hope to say he's with us and he's with us for the long haul. I don't know how it's going to work out. But I know when Jesus commits himself to us, we get to experience Leviticus 26.12. I will walk among you. I will restore what was lost. Relationship gets found again. I'll be your God and you'll be my people. We get to experience really hard things with a different identity. Who are we? Who are we? We're people God likes. We're dearly loved people who he's committed himself to. I'm very, very, very skeptical to say this. Because I don't want to be misunderstood. And I'm, you, I'm ready for the emails, okay? When, in John chapter 2, it says Jesus didn't believe. He wouldn't commit himself. He didn't believe in these people. But he did believe here. The invitation that John's gospel is even saying, hey, there's an invitation to believe. Entrust yourself to Jesus. Would it be easier, though, if Jesus first believed in us? If he entrusted himself to us? If he said, hey, I believe, I'm here. I'm for you. I'm committed. I'm not going anywhere. You're mine. But I'm wrestling. Yeah. And there's space. Who are you this morning? Who are you? As the band comes up, as we land the plane today, that's the question I just want you to be sitting with Jesus about. Who am I? Am I somebody who's Still living in this consequence, fear-based way of relating to you, God? Or do I trust that you are for me? You're on my side. You're coming after me. Who 
am I? God, as we ask this question of us this morning, God, I pray your spirit would move. I pray that your spirit would move and would be ready to show us who we are. If your presence changes our identity, that changes the way we feel about ourselves, God. That changes the messages we hear. God, I pray that your word would be shaping those messages. God, I pray that we would be people who know that God walks in our midst. You live, you dwell. You experience us like we, with the familiarity we experience Columbia. Let's call all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This podcast is part of the ministry of Compass Church in Columbia, Missouri. For more information, please check out compasscfc.com.